This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And you know, you know it's a good when a good friend shows up, they bring rum. That's right. So, Papa's Pilar, no, no doubt. Grab this thing here. Papa's Pilar, my favorite <laughs> rum in the whole wide world. I it is I, good. I brought this to a friend's house the other night. Um, about once a month, there's a friend in town here that about four or five guys will get together, play dominoes, hang out, you know what I mean, and smoke cigars. And, you know, I play a little guitar, and so does he. So I'll sometimes grab the guitar and um, we'll bring over a different rum. Right. If we've been doing this probably like the third time in a row, um, we did it. He had brought a rum for the first time. I had a bottle of Havana Club um, at the house already that I brought over last time. And it was like, oh, that's great, great. You know, the history behind Havana Club and everything. And then for the other, the next time, I'm like, well, I'm going to up the game. So I brought this. And he's like, oh, what is this? I said, this is the best rum you're ever going to have in your entire life. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah. So he instantly, we cracked it open, put a glass in the shot glass with one ice cube over it. And uh, he drank it. He went, you are so right. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, it is. It's the best. Oh, for it sure. is. So, <clears throat> and you're on vacation, so I'm going to open this. I think that's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> so welcome to Connected by Water. Oh, glad to be here. Been, uh, I remember you talking about it during the start and yep. told me about it. So fantastic. It's, it's great to see it off the ground. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have you. I mean, it's really, it's so cool that you're here for this. I mean, you know, bringing together the community, that's what this show is all about. I mean, who more is a bigger part of the community than you? You know, um, so there we go. Great to have you on. So we're celebrating today, too. I was about to say, was, do you need an owner's manual to show you how to open that thing up or what? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got our glasses here. All right. We're just going to sip it today. Straight rum. Right? Absolutely. Spilt a little for good luck. And, there you go. And here's to wishing the very best of luck with the new endeavor. Thank you, sir. Likewise, you too. Mm. 
Where's my that cup? Is delicious. <laughs> you want a cup? No, you're, you, oh, no, you're good, the I'm one good. who needs to be paying attention. Yeah, clock, I gotta man. pay attention. <laughs> Ooh, it's good. So, um, we were talking just a minute ago about the boat shows. We're coming up on boat show season. Mm-hmm. Are you making any appearances? Uh, Lauderdale, I show up usually either opening day or I'll be there Friday and Saturday, just a free roaming. I'll hang a little around Mako booth for a little bit, but the ones where I uh, really get locked into appearances on Miami show because I'll be at the Simrad booth okay. on that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then from there I go to the Mako booth and do the t-shirt signings for those three days. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of, um, again, like a little mini vacation, a lot of a boat show because I'm not constrained to be in any particular booth at, for a set amount of time, walk around and see people in the industry and have time to talk with them and, and enjoy the show and enjoy catching up. It's got to be a treat for you, <clears throat> though, because I, I know so much of your schedule is so tied to the half dues and the mm-hmm. obligations and stuff like that. So it's probably nice for you to be able to walk around casually. Oh, it's a piece of cake and <clears throat> very enjoyable. You grab a buddy of yours and you do the whole show and what's over before you go home, you go out and grab a bite somewhere and get up and do it one more day. And and like I said, it, it's just an opportunity to, to get caught up because it, everybody or most everybody that you know within the industry will be at the show. Mm-hmm. And when you're able to get around, it gives you the opportunity to see everybody and have a quick visit and, and that. Whereas sometimes when you're at shows and you're locked into doing schedules and this and that, you don't really get that opportunity because of the, the time constraints on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. <clears throat> um, so we're going to make a little announcement today though, right? Mm-hmm. Is it okay if we just jump right into that? Go right into it. So for years, um, you've been filming for over 20. This year in January, be our 20th uh, anniversary on national television. 20th anniversary on national television. Congratulations. And That's like amazing. I tell people, um, you know, I started as a science fair project in seventh grade and it got out of hand from there. A science fair project. <laughs> Remember those things? Yeah. Okay. So how did it start as a science fair that, project? That was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> meaning I'm not like, as old. Like, really? Meaning I'm not as old as I look. <laughs> you know, you had to be good in math. Get in seventh grade to now, twenty years. Yeah. Okay. Hey, John, John, help him out over there, would you? It's the rum. I'm telling you, it's the rum. If you're in trouble with Already, one sip, I don't want to see you when you finish that glass. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> and I thought I was bad, Matt, yeah, which I wow. always was. Uh, you called me, you called me <laughs> on my heels. All right. You called me on my heels there. That's right. That's cool. I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but 20-year anniversary. 20-year anniversary, and you are migrating this situation over to bigger and better things right the, now. Uh, we go to the Discovery Channel with uh, World of Saltwater Fishing come January. We are weekends, first and second quarters, uh-huh. which is uh, really, it's, it's a big jump. And how that happened was uh, we were on NBC Sports mm-hmm. uh, for nine years, and then we got a call in April from the show person uh, that was in charge of the outdoors. And George, you know, you've been such a strong customer. You've been with us for, you know, nine years. And so rather than send you an email like we're going to send to the other show hosts, we wanted to let you know, you know, talking to you that NBC is getting out of the outdoors effective January 2020, so we're not running any more outdoor shows. And she said, remember those rumors that would start up like every year that NBC was getting out of the outdoor game and then you would call me and I would tell you that, that no, we're, we're just as strong as ever we're going to be there. She says, that we almost ended it two or three years earlier, but we decided to stay with the outdoors, but we're officially dropping outdoors. Mm-hmm. 
So I call up my show producers and say, well, guys, guess what? Uh, either we're going to find a new home here or we're going to have a lot of free time to fish without the cameras. Yeah. And uh, through some associations that I had, <clears throat> we entered negotiations with Discovery Channel. And about two weeks later, locked down a deal. And the funny thing about it, whereas with NBC Sports, where we thought, okay, man, we're, we're, we're leaving such a high-rated network. Right. And then where are you going to go? Um, you know, because you want to keep your ratings up. And then all of a sudden, for them to tell you that they're out of the outdoors, and then you end up at the Discovery Channel, which is a much larger network ratings-wise. Right. So we came from being without a television show to one with a super huge market well over that of NBC Sports. So the ball took a bounce in our favor, and then uh, we jumped on it. That's phenomenal. <clears throat> I mean, it's that's really, it's not even just a national channel. It's, the, it's a worldwide channel. It, it, it's huge. And, yeah. it's, uh, and uh, the history of the show, are we first started on uh, ESPN2. Mm-hmm. And we had shot a pilot, and back then there was TNN, which was the Nashville network, and then you had ESPN, and those were the two majors running outdoor shows. So when we shot a pilot, and we decided, well, let's go ahead and send it to the national network, TNN and ESPN. Uh, two days later, we got a call from ESPN saying they liked the pilot. Somebody's dropping out of the 7 o'clock position. You know, we'd like to talk to you about filling it. <clears throat> so we flew to Connecticut. And uh, we left with a deal. We ran 10 years on ESPN2 until they decided they were pulling out of the outdoor fishing, hunt, uh, hunting, outdoor mm-hmm. shows. So then we got picked up by Versus, which was owned by NBC Sports, which became NBC Sports. We were there nine years. <clears throat> now we go to Discovery Channel. So the ongoing joke is, okay, let's see what network we're going to wear out now, you know, because <laughs> we're wearing them out. <laughs> yeah, right. That's cool. If anyone can wear them out, it's you. You're wearing out all those fish all the time. I mean, God knows you have the endurance. It's um, just a ton of fun, and it, it, it's, it's passion. And I was telling John John, uh, he was asked how it was our filming going for 2020. And we just shot our last show for 2020 last week, which is pretty much beginning of October. Mm-hmm. Our normal shooting schedule takes us from April until really pretty much into December. We're always trying to get that last television shoot in in December. Mm-hmm. And we shoot 13 episodes. And this year I told the team, I said, you know what, let's just really hunker down and, and, and go for it. It's going to be a pain. But I said I would really like to end the season without having to drag on into December worrying about getting a show. I like to have like December somewhat off where you could sit around and uh, drink Papa's Plar rum and eggnog and eat yep. Christmas cookies and enjoy the spirit a little bit rather than trying to run and get this last show in. You know, there's a lot <clears throat> to be said for that. I oh, mean, yeah. We say that all the time every year because you, you, December sneaks up on you quick, <laughs> especially for doing what we do here as an art studio because – Everyone always waits for the last minute to say, oh, I need this, I need this, I need this. For the, they think that the gift's last minute, and art takes time to create, right? So we're always, like, right down to the wire. And I said to Liz, you know, this year, I was like, you know what? We're not doing that again. Like, so I sent out a, a Facebook message early on and a bunch of emails to a bunch of people, like, if anyone wants anything, I'm cutting it off. If you don't get your order in by the beginning of November, we're not doing it. You know, so, and, and I think it's going to be But you'll nice. end up doing it. Oh, I, <laughs> I so will. That's, that's the saddest part. I will. I can't resist. I, I, I got to work on that, though. Like, saying no. Like you That's know, my we, hardest problem, too. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we had um we had Troy and my buddy Matt Williams on recently on a podcast, and we, we 
talked about the like the power or, or like what, what do they call it? I mean, just pleasing people, pleasing. Mm-hmm. You just you know, yeah, <clears throat> no one wants to hear no, no one wants to hear no. Um, but then you back yourself into a corner, like wow, I really got to do that, you know. And and it's it was it's probably a lot easier in the beginning just to say no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But there's something that always just you know there you know like in your your case and and, and even the same in mine <clears throat> those are your customers they're the ones who buy your art that that look up to you and and you know you're you're in the business of taking care of your customers mm-hmm. you don't want to turn anybody away and and that's that's the positions we get ourselves into and we yeah. just got to work our way through it you don't want to be anyone's bad experience I, guess, <laughs> you know, but I don't know sometimes but in the end of the day sometimes it can do more harm than good but i don't know maybe i'm just speaking for myself on that one but um no that's that's really awesome though that you're going to be able to take the season oh, yeah. off like that this it's was going to be a nice treat for you it is we ended our shooting schedule for 2020 like i said last week and in 20 years we've never ever ended this early so now I don't know what to do with myself. For yeah, next I was going to ask, what do, you, what do you have planned now? Come, come, come <laughs> hang out the studio here with Dennis. Right? Go to the studio. <laughs> I mean, what else do you have to do at 2 o'clock in the that's afternoon, it. right? That's it. Is it 2? <laughs> on what, a Tuesday? Yeah, two, it's it. 2 on Tuesday. We're yeah. drinking rum. That's, you know, that's, I went to art school. So I got to p- tell people that all the time, you know, when we're talking about different, you know, aspects of the business, when like the business stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who went to art school here, so you, you talk amongst yourselves and let me know what you, what you come up with, and I'll just make it look good. So, yep. Yeah, especially now that we've expanded. But, you know, I don't know. Place looking beautiful. Thank you very much. Um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely turned into something. I mean, we wanted, like, the mics and the technicality of it to be top-notch, but as we started dressing up the room, it kind of started taking on a life of its own mm-hmm. in, like, the last couple of weeks when we were building out the room, so... Uh, we had the wrap donated to us by our good friend, uh, good friend Wade at oh, yeah. uh, Image Graphics. He, he, he they, don't, they let her my boats. Yeah, he, yeah, he <laughs> donated the the wrap for us. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to give a shout out to him that he did provide that to us. Um, so I, I think that makes a good, nice touch um, in the room. So yeah, no, we're happy. It's cozy. It's home. You know, just like anything that else that I do, it's got to be like mm-hmm. full on. You know what I mean? So and you're like that too. Um, you know, so I want to talk to you about the evolution of your show. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, from where you've started to where you are now, right. I mean, this is really a nice moment for you mm-hmm. uh, with the whole discovery thing. But, you know, your show over time, you know, take us through that, like when you first started and what were your plans were, what well, your how, ideas how were. how the whole show concept started. I had come aboard, and I still am with, Saltwater Sportsman Magazine. I came aboard with them in 1983. And I write tackle and tactics column. I would do that today. And um, then we started the Saltwater Sportsman National Seminar Series, which is the nation's largest and longest-running seminar tour. We go to eight cities across the country mm-hmm. between January and March. And this January, the tour enters into its 33rd year. And I've been with them, you know, from the very beginning. But how the show started, <clears throat> I think it might have been the ninth or 10th year with the seminar series. And... I was figuring out my next career move. I would Saltwater Sportsman Magazine, which was the big, it is the big saltwater fishing magazine nationally. And then we have the seminar series. I've been still with that. And that was, uh, you know, running at that point, nine or 10 years. It's the nation's biggest seminar tour. So I'm thinking, what am I going to do next? And the thing that irked me, when you looked at the television fishing shows that were on back then, pretty much would maybe an exception or two. There was just goofballs. Mm-hmm. Guys, how you doing, Sam? <clears throat> Great. Hey, that's a pretty fit. Beautiful one. There, it was like mine rot. 
to sit there and, and look what they're doing. And to me, since saltwater fishing's in my blood, it was like an insult to our sport and to saltwater fishing in general to have these people in boats looking like a bunch of Googans. And I think that's an embarrassment to our, our sport. So I said, I want to do a national TV show. And I said, I'm going to stick to the formulas that made our seminar series successful. And that is providing useful information that people could watch and pick up on and also make it entertaining, but also somehow teach within it. So if you were going to do a dolphin episode and say we shot the dolphin episode for argument's sake out of West Palm Beach. Well, somebody in uh, North Carolina could watch it. Somebody off of Alabama could watch it that fish for dolphin. You know, they don't, they're not in Palm Beach, but they'll watch that show. And if we're doing a certain thing with dolphin trolling, and they're going to look at the little subtleties that we're doing to catch dolphin on the troll. And they're going to think of how we could apply that when we go dolphin fishing off our water. So there's something that people could pick up. So I stuck with that hard hitting educational formula from day one. And we shot a pilot show and it got picked up by ESPN. And they said the same thing. We like the instructional value. We like the entertainment value. It wasn't just like you put them to sleep with instructions. You had everything and just came together the way we intended it to. And there was no frills, no sideshows as other people out there. And I'm not going to mention any names sort of do to try to get their hold in there. And mm -hmm. uh, this was a show and is a show dedicated to people in saltwater fishing with the passion, you know, and, and we stuck with that same formula and it's been a winning formula all the way across the board. We never varied or anything. And, you know, ironically, our big break was the first time we ever aired was on ESPN. So it wasn't like we started with a lesser network, like a regional, and then got noticed from there. We started right off with, mm -hmm. with the big time. And, and fortunately, I had a lot of good sponsors that I've always known through my saltwater sportsman associations and the seminar series associations that – you know, we're there to, to back you because they knew who you were and they knew the job that we were capable of doing. So you had their trust and it was uh, just, it gelled and it, it, and it, we're still doing it now. Yeah. I think that's phenomenal. I mean, you know, <clears throat> just the mere fact that, let me go back a little bit what to when I was in the seventh grade and I started first watching. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm to pay you I think you were sitting, you were sitting either in front or behind me, if I remember. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and they hold you in summer school because you were bad at math, right? That's, that's <laughs> very true. That is very true. Um, no, but I mean, I think that what you're talking about in the format that you brought to the scene, I think really changed a lot about, you know, the fishing shows on TV and outdoor shows in general, I think. And your influence in that respect is being felt still today. Oh, I would hope so. No, I think so. No, I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm almost stating that as like fact, you know what I mean? And it, it is true. I mean, you have really changed the landscape of, of all that to, to where I think people would take notice and start mimicking that format. Um, you, you know, and I think that that really speaks to both your popularity and your legend today. Um, in, in the fact that you were an innovator in that respect. And, um, you know, still people look at you as an extremely reliable source uh, from that respect. Well, I appreciate the uh, nice comments. And it's, it is, and it's just, it's going back to just portraying saltwater fishing as a, uh, you know, it, it, as a not a Guggen sport. That, yeah. That's the, the key I'm trying to say here. You know, if you're going to represent something, you know, you, you give it, you know, the, the just rewards of what it is. Mm -hmm. 
and um, you know, showcase it in the entertainment and the the fun and the thrills. I mean, we're all addicts with fishing yeah, for sure, and as yeah. uh, are a lot of people out there. So you just want to share this with everybody, and and it's funny being a you know competitive type of individual, as I'm sure you are too with other marine artists, is that you know you look at other shows as competition that that's running in your league. And even though you're friendly with these people, there's still a competition. So, um, you know, you, you come out and do the best that, that you can. And, and then sometimes I'll look and say, you know, this show here, that per- they're, they're, they don't really know what they're doing with saltwater because you could smell it out. But they use either gimmicks or twists or different kind of things, you, you know, to get that show through. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and then you look at that and you say, well, why would the network even run that? But then you need to sit down and think. Okay, well, if the, if the network thought likewise and they cut all these shows out, it would say you and maybe two others, uh, they, they, they would shut you off. There, there'd be no competition, which means there'd be no outdoor fishing shows. So you need those others in your block because that's longevity. Without them, you don't have a race. Right. I always say that too because it's funny you bring up the parallel with other marine life artists because I look at that too. And I bring other artists on this mm-hmm. show because I have a network, like a circle of artists that I'm very good friends with. Um, you know, and there's no, you know, yeah, there's a competition amongst those guys, but mm-hmm. I think that competition is more healthy <laughs> and we support sure. each other. You know what I mean? We, and we all know that we make each other, make ourselves better. You push each other. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, to where, you know, oh, I saw, you know, Pete do something good, you mm-hmm. know, this week. And, you know, that makes me want to really do something good too. Mm-hmm. You know, and we understand that about each other and there's no hate there's no animosity there um but we always say that strength in numbers Mm -hmm. because if you look at uh, marine life art in general if there's just like one guy right then there's just one guy and if but if there's a movement that just benefits all of us there's no doubt one guy would put people to sleep after a while and that'd be it yeah, and you'd be like, well, if there's only one guy who's cornered that market, then what's the point? Exactly, right. You know, really. But if there's there's an influence of, of you know, a movement behind it, then I think it's more meaningful. But there's no doubt. And I think you can feed off each other and you can yep. get ideas off each other and you can gain off each other's momentum. As long as you keep the right perspective, you're not vindictive and, you know, you're sure. not trying to. That, like, yeah. and, and some also, too, if it, some people might be influenced, overly influenced possibly by um, their sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, to where they say, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. And they don't have um, the wherewithal or the authority to make their own calls or, you know, they're just being pushed along. They're being puppeted along. Um, whereas you, basically, this is your baby. I um, mean, this is your work of art. You know, the, the, the 20 seasons of shows that you've done and everything like that. So um, so that's very commendable too. But And with the sponsors and what you're just saying is, you know, we fish – you know, we, we talk about techniques, tactics, and we actually show those sponsor products in use. Mm-hmm. Penn sees the outfits we're using, uh, you know, Rapala and Suffix, the lines, <clears throat> Simred Electronics. All this is being used in the actual fishing situation, and people notice that. It's not like all of a sudden you're – take a minute out – this brand new pen reel is so spectacular. We couldn't live on it. You're not being a, a NASCAR person sitting there just right. because people get tired of that. We blend it into our shows. They see us actually being used. So it's portrayed in a, in an educational type fashion. And I, and I think in a classy fashion and an on, 
and I'm a stock car fan too, so all the stock car guys don't get mad at me in a non-NASCAR fashion, right, right. if you understand that. For sure. Because we're showing it being used. And people say, hey, they're doing this, look at that. I mean, that reel landed a 55-pound grouper, I fish a striped bass. <laughs> I'm sold on that because that thing will last me for five years. If that guy caught that big grouper on that, you know, you show them this stuff. And I'll, no, now that you got me all wound up, is the other that's, thing that's my job that's my job on this show <laughs> about George. the show is that wound up <laughs> well we do t uh, um, two things every fish you have ever ever seen caught by my guest angler or myself on my show we did it mm -hmm. unlike some other shows and i'm not mentioning names we don't have camera boats fishing people fishing out there in different boats passing to the rods to get the show in we don't pin fish up mm -hmm. as some inshore freshwater types may do where they could go out in a half a day and say dennis you're my buddy you fish x amount of uh, bass tournaments over here let's do a show at the area give me three hours or half a day but make sure your boat's the camera boat pin some bass up put them in your live well and they cut away to hookups so, i mean a lot of this does happen mm -hmm. and we're out there everything you see on our show was caught by myself or my guest angler uh, no fakes, no frauds, nothing like that. And our show, we still do it the old school way in that we were taught this by ESPN. We're a minimum of a two camera shoot, a wide and a tight angle. Then we have uh, an underwater and a drone operator. So that's three camera people. And we set aside five days to get a show. We have a travel day coming and going. Five days, wow. And three actual days on site. And the reason we do that, because you have so much budget and time and expenses that if you show up and it's blowing 30 knots on day one, well, day two, it might drop or day three, it might drop. So within a three day window, you're going to have an opportunity, hopefully to get out and get that show mm -hmm. rather than just budget one day. And then, then you've lost it. And, uh, so it's, uh, five days devoted each show travel day, both ends, three days, actual shooting. And there's been times we've gone out in the first, half a day and end up with more fish than you could even possibly put in a show, but we'll still fish, put the diver down, mm -hmm. um, you know, and do technical stuff, do some online stuff. We still work that, that formula. And, and um, you know, so we're still with the old school with that whole time frame too. Has that ever <clears throat> backfired on you? Where, as far as as far as that five day window being just so horrible. Oh yeah, and we've had a couple of those. <laughs> we had one. This we're not having a show this week. We had one. This goes way back. And normally, when we get decent weather, we'll catch something. We're you know we'll we'll scare something up. But against my better judgment, we decided to do a show in the Abacos uh, during August. And I took a buddy of mine and said, "Let's go over there. We'll spend six days." We'll, we'll get two shows, a reef show, and then we'll scare something offshore. And the Abacos, you know, that's in March, April, May, June. And then after that, things really get sparse in the mm -hmm. offshore world. But we said, you know, we were getting a little cocky. We could do something there. I go over my buddy, had five beautiful days of weather. <clears throat> Camera boat, everything. We trolled, we ran, we put the radar on looking for birds. Not one single offshore fish, not even a barracuda. So he said, let's drop on the reefs. We'll get some yellowtail and, and bail out one show. Not the first yellowtail to be caught. It was such a bad, every spot we hit, we Marsh jumped Harbor? heavily. Yeah. Yeah. We just hit all the spots we had and not a single thing worked. So we spent five, six days in the Bahamas, came away with zero. 
and you still have the same amount of shows you have to do. So now wow. you look at your schedule and you've got to squeeze another show or two in between the schedules that you have. But there's been fortunately not that many, but weather's always been our, our biggest issue to deal with. Yeah. Cause I mean, <clears throat> I mean, it, we're all anglers in this room. And so we all know that like, no matter how good you are and you're obviously the best among us here, um, no matter how good you are, you're still going to have days that sure. just the fish are just not biting. You know, yep. with all your knowledge you have, it's just not happening today. And sometimes even if you think you got the conditions dialed in, you know, God has other plans for you. So it, it is. And yeah. it's challenging to change things up. And then the other limiting factor is that you're limited by the seas that your production team can shoot in. Whereas if it's really, you know, if it's blown 15, 20 knots, you and I, we hunker down, foul weather gear, we go fish. Yeah. But they can't shoot in that because of the cameras and the camera boats trying to get near you and this and that. So... A lot of times when it's 15 knots, we know we have to have like a little powwow because you're shooting it. If we do get hooked up, we have to turn the boats down sea to make it comfortable for them. And at times, fortunately now, with the, I have a Mako 33 now, when it's really blowing hard, we'll forego the camera boat. And I'll put the production team guys in my boat and say, guys, you're going to hunker down mm-hmm. and we're going to shoot it from in the boat, which makes all it a little tight. bit easier. All tight. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. So, so there's a lot of factors, not just you go out there with the cameras and it, it all comes together. There's a lot of logistics and things that, you know, people don't realize or see. Yeah, because weather is always, I mean, obviously, <clears> is <throat> the biggest indicator of how your day is going to go. So, no doubt. Um, but you had some pretty good weather. What, was it just last week you were down for fishing for bonefish? Yeah. Less offshore. So that's that's a little bit less of a weather-intensive moment. To a certain degree. Which I always <laughs> love. I always love fishing for bonefish. That's really uh-huh. kind of like my favorite type maybe it's my favorite i always say this but maybe it's i think i just realized this in my head maybe it's my favorite yeah. type of fishing because i don't get to do it as often as i do you know other type of fishing not that this year has been a great fishing year for me but um but i always love the novelty of the hunt because mm-hmm. it really is a lot like hunting to me um just you gotta be real quiet and you know what i mean and you just gotta just make sure you, you're really kind of like sight fishing and everything there so um, can you take me through some of that bonefish? And I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at what you just said. You can and, laugh and, at me, and, though. No, no, Everyone and, does. It's and, cool. and you portrayed it as such, <laughs> like, you know, bonefishing, the quietness, the stalk, the stealthness of it all. Now, we did it a little differently um, because my small mako, it doesn't have a polling platform. Mm-hmm. So we, we chummed them. You're taking the LTS out for that? Yeah. Yeah, nice. We chummed them. We got into a spot Very about cool. two feet of water. And broke up some live shrimp, threw them out, and, and then uh, you would see them come in, and then you'd pitch. So you would think that, you know, you have to be really quiet, in a, like you just said. And anyway, I hook a bonnethead shark. We had put a camera, an underwater camera, down in that white sand hole to see the chunks of the mm-hmm. shrimp coming down and the fish coming in underwater. I hook a, a bonnethead shark. I'm fighting this bonnethead shark, and it's running past where the camera was, and we finally get that in there. I'm thinking this thing's going to scare all the bonefish out. So we release it. So 40 minutes later, to take the camera back out, reviewing the, the, the film, taking that clip out, put another one in. And one of the guys are laughing. You want to see something here? Here's, here's your skittery, skittery bonefish. He shows me the hook bonnet head going around that camera as it's floundering past the camera. Here comes a bonefish just eating behind it. So here's a, All a fish struggling in trouble, yeah. and yet a bonefish is right on its tail just eating a shrimp at the bottom like nothing ever happened. I wouldn't think that at all. <laughs> I think those things are so skittish I'm like scary cats. You. I think, you know, they spook so easy. Yeah, we end up getting like seven of them in that, that method. And um, 
But the good thing was, you know, you if it's blowing, you could get on a leave an island. It's nice and calm there, mm-hmm. and you could usually get that one in. Yeah, I love it. You know, every time I would go over to Marsh Harbor, because um, I would do a lot of the artwork for uh, Skip's tournaments mm-hmm. over there, um, he would always say, he's like, oh, you want me to get you on a Marlin boat? And I would always say no, because those teams are all set. Yeah. You know, so I'd just be, like, going on a boat ride. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather fish while I'm over here. So I would always go to the other side of the island and go bone fishing. So mm-hmm. to me, that's it's just a spiritual moment for me. It, it is. Know? And, and so, the amazing life forms that show up in two feet of water, they're pretty incredible. Yeah. No, yeah. When you see that little wolf pack come around, like, yeah. the corner of a mangrove patch, and you see those little shadows <laughs> just coming, that's beautiful. It I is. I know, that's beautiful. So um, you have probably caught every species of saltwater fish i think like out there for the most part right uh yes um and when it comes i'm i'm my heart's in the offshore fishing that's right. what i do i do the inshore stuff i grew up doing uh, sea trout and snook and tarpon in north biscayne bay w- w- when i grew up in miami and then moved to the offshore stuff but that's always my heart the offshore so that's what i do most of and i've caught in every billfish species mm-hmm. in the world with the exception of the spearfish and I didn't set any particular time, like I'm going to get them all within one year. Between my travels with Saltwater Sportsman Magazine, what we do with the shows, I would set up some either feature stories or shows in these areas and pick it off. Okay, check off Black Marlin on your list. Check off Striped Marlin. And the one that uh, I'm waiting to get a hold of is a spearfish, which, you know, infrequently will show up some one year, maybe one or two off our coast a year being mm-hmm. caught. So people say, go to Hawaii. There's this place. Say, to to do a and it's trip. never really interests me to do that. Maybe I might. But mm-hmm. I said, you know, I think it would be so cool to do that in your own waters. And ironically, going back to the early 80s, I had a buddy of mine out in my boat. We were at a haul over. And I got him his uh, first sailfish. And then all of a sudden, we're trolling. And I had a swimming mullet on a flat line. And here comes what I look like, a white marlin. So I said, get him. Here's your white now. We're going to get you a white marlin. So he dropped back and he missed it. And, and it bring that bait up, brings it up. Fish comes in again. He drops and he hooks it. So I'm um, great. Got his white marlin. I grabbed him. <laughs> look at the spearfish. And oh, I know that. He would have gone overboard. <laughs> so we got one in my boat, but I didn't catch it. <laughs> yeah, he should have grabbed the rod from him. <laughs> if I'd known, but, oh, but what man, are you going to do? That's funny. But that's the only you know, billfish I need to knock out, but a lot of the other species, yeah, we, we covered a, yeah, Hawaii is the spot for that. Yes. Yeah, what though, I hear you go yeah. out there and you can knock them off and, uh, pretty easily too. Yeah. I, I have a buddy of mine, Randy, um, Randy Strauss that did that recently where mm-hmm. he was just hell bent on getting it. And, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago he went out there and he got it. Yep. And yeah. so I might do that yet, but I'm going to, you know, I'm still holding out the old home waters here. You yeah, know, how no, special well, that you be? know, I, I, I see that about you, where, where you'd rather catch it here than have to chase it. You know, sure. Rather, you know, because if you get it out here, it, it's going to be just that much more impressive and special than. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, now you fish all up and down the coast. I know you go um to Venice, Louisiana, mm-hmm. a lot as well. So you go basically like once a year, you're going there more than that. Uh, we alternate. The show's national. So in the 20 years of doing the show, we've hit every state saltwater side from beginning with shows in Maine all the way down, all the way through Texas. The only area that I've not gone to yet uh, for shows California, but we've been to Alaska. And uh, oh, you have been to Alaska. Yeah, we've done one or two episodes out of there before, too. Oh, man, I must have missed those. Deep jigging for the halibut, the saltwater side yeah, of life. Yeah, cool. 
which is pretty cool. So we've done. How'd you like fishing in Alaska? I, I liked it. I, I really liked it because the halibut, I wanted to do like the South Florida deep jigging style. We had a little small deep jigging reel and, and a bucktail with a, the worm on it and dropping down. And, and we were catching them with the small reels and they're saying, well, you need these big four pound weights and heavy rods. Said, Let me try, you know, this. And we ended up doing a good show. I think it, my big was a 68 pounder. Caught on a bait caster with a you're kidding a, a, a jig and a worm which on a I bait was caster cool. yeah on a bass rod it's Florida style wow yeah that, yeah sixty eight pound fish so, yep and then we got a thirty seven pound ling cod which is had to be one of the most ugliest fish around you know it's you ever see a ling cod mm -hmm. that with Halloween coming up that'd be a great costume <laughs> <laughs> a ling cod a ling cod look right, that so thing up you just challenged me as a marine life artist you're, you're I don't think you're gonna sell many ling cod prints but you never know <laughs> no. <laughs> No, <laughs> I got to check that one out for sure. But yeah, I've, I've, I've enjoyed them. And, um, and the reason why I've not done shows in California, I've done saltwater sportsman features out there before, but I just think because you have to hit that right when they, that warm water comes up yeah, and you have the fish there. And I think just from the headache standpoint of traveling at a distance to do it for what they have to offer, unless it's red hot, there's so many other better spots that you could, it's Dude, a different scene <clears throat> yeah. out there. You know, I, I mean, I, I think um, people don't realize what we have here. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I know you, I know. we've we've discussed this before about Venice, basically mm -hmm. saying, like, Venice is probably the best fishery yeah. in, in the continental United yep. States. Um, but that's, you know, Florida itself, too, is still oh, phenomenal. Yeah. I don't think people realize what, what an amazing fishery. We were real spoiled we you know what I mean, with what we have here. Um, but if you go to other places, I mean, it's it's not a bite like this. Now, I know we can go to Costa Rica and catch, you know, 50 sailfish in a day and like that kind mm -hmm. of thing. But as far as um, like a balance mm -hmm. of and variety um, and There's diversity. There's so much that yeah, you can catch here. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and I tried, I mean, you know, we talked about, it, I tried to portray that on the bridge where it's just like, you know, there's such diversity within our, our um, marine, you know, ecosystem. Um, that it's it's really you, you look at places like California and you would think oh it's Pacific and you got all these dolphin and these sea otters and like all the or not sea otters but what you call them, uh, walruses what yeah. do they have over there Let's <laughs> yeah. see. Uh, the seals yep mm -hmm. um, it's the rum talking though, <laughs> so but you, you you're not getting the type of fishing pound for pound that you are here no you're not and uh, and we're just so diverse and then you look at what we have here not only you have the fisheries here. Uh, but you you had the the Florida Keys mm -hmm. right below you, and you have the Bahamas right across from it. You yeah. were in the spot to hit anything. Then, if you wanted to do like you said a a South American or Central American trip, you're a, what a, a hour and a half to our mm -hmm. plane ride from Miami down to one of these spots. So you're right. within striking distance. And if you love freshwater, look at the great canals you have here in Broward alone. Let alone right. driving up to Lake Wachobe or mm -hmm. you've Plus got all everything the exotics here. that are here that sure. people travel to. South like, America and stuff for sure. We're right in, in our own backyard right here. We're, I mean, we're living in the saltwater yeah. mecca, and that's why people ask me if you had to leave South Florida, where would you go? And I said, I'm not. Exactly. But not, the only time I'm leaving South Florida is when I check out and leave the building. I mean, that's gonna be the end yep. of me because you have everything that, here. That makes two of us. For <laughs> I know, sure. right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the God's honest truth. I talk about it all the time. People say, "What would you do? What would you do if you won a lottery?" I'm like, "Well, I'd probably still paint fish, and maybe I'd buy a bigger house around here." You know, mm -hmm. what I mean? but that's that's you know why, why well, would you want to be anywhere else? Arguably, we're in the best area, but I will throw one out there that unless you're from the Northeast, 
which I'm not a born and raised in Miami, but unless you are down here from the Northeast, you would know this, but a lot of people don't. We talk about great fishing areas. New Jersey would be, would blow your mind. The incredible yeah, fish they have true. there. Yeah. And, and the Montauk area and all that. Yeah. The attitude of the people who fish Jersey. We've, we do seminars every year. I've done a number of shows out of Jersey. They're as crazed as South Florida saltwater mm-hmm. anglers. There is unbelievable how strong of a contingent they are between the inshore, the canyon uh, folks up there. That is a huge, huge, huge saltwater that market. That's true. And I think a lot of our manufacturers, you know, they pump Florida because we're, it's a big area. But, uh, I mean, Jersey's incredible. It's a wild area and the fishing's phenomenal. I've experienced it up there. Yeah, my whole family is from New Jersey originally. Mm -hmm. I was born and raised here. I'm the youngest of six. I'm the only one born. I I call themselves, I always tell them I'm the lucky one. Mm -hmm. I was able to be born here. Um, And my wife is from New Jersey as well. And Mm -hmm. her father still lives, her parents still live up there. And her father is a scout dealer up in New Jersey. Um, But yeah, no, we have a big following up there and we had a lot of huge customer base, like the Brielle area and even sure. like down to Ocean City and the, that whole kind of, that whole back and forth um, between those two areas right there. Yeah, it is pretty fanatical. It is no how, doubt. Yeah, how they get into that. No doubt. Um, so you talk about your seminars though. Mm-hmm. Um, how often are you doing those? We do those um, every year between January and March, and we do eight across the country. We rotate the cities to give the readership of saltwater sportsmen an opportunity to see the tour. And what it is, it's a one-day saltwater fishing seminar geared to the region which is being held. And when we travel, it's a Saturday from 9 to 3, we have what we call our touring national faculty members, and then we're paired up with probably eight or so regional faculty members. So it's a one-day seminar geared inshore, nearshore, offshore, on tricks, techniques, and tactics of how to catch the key game fish within that area. And uh, it's the largest, uh, most popular seminar of its kind and the oldest running or longest running. This January is going to be year 33 for the tour. <sighs> and uh, wow! And it's like, so that's another reason we get our shows done by December, because not only do we air it at January through June, but the, sa- the weekends between January and the beginning of March, I'm on the road the seminar series mm-hmm. and uh there doesn't leave you time to do anything else but 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 go on that and um really amazing uh and, and the opportunity to work with so many good regional pros in those areas mm-hmm. and you learn so much you're, you're a faculty member but you learn a lot about the local type of fishing and the subtleties they're they're doing to catch the same type of species we target here so a lot of cases when you're fishing here and your primary method isn't really doing it you think about that a lot well, let's do some adjustments and, and try something different that you've heard. And, and in a lot of cases it works, but it's a fun deal. And then we always hold one in Jersey and the, the Lord, where, where in New Jersey, Atlantic city. Oh yeah. And, there, and there's a funny story behind it is it, I guess it was 2011, maybe 2001. I mean, 33 years that they, they blend together and our strong seminars turnout wise of it's always between South Florida North Carolina and New Jersey. Now, New Jersey had set our all-time attendance record. This was, I, I want to say 2001. We were at the Trump's Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, mm-hmm. and we sold out 600, we sold 600 tickets three weeks before we came to town. So I call the person at the hall and said, hey, could we get more seats? And he says, yeah, how many do you want? And I said, put, put 200 more in. 
So we did. A week later, we sold those out. So I called him, could you get any How more How far in? in advance to the event is this? Now we're coming in about two weeks prior. Okay. So long story short, he says, I got the place maxed out at 1000 We sold that before we, we came to town. So we pushed, we said it was sold out, but we still had walk-ups. People lined up that morning to buy tickets. So we said, the seats are taken. You're going to have to stand in the back of, 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 of the grand ballroom. Said we're doing it. The fire marshal comes in. And stops it, stops, cuts us off. Is it you're beyond the fire the number of people could have in here? So we set the record in Jersey. It was 1,150 people were in that theater. For a fishing seminar. That's great. When it was done, the guy who runs the ballroom came up to me and said, you know, when you first booked this hall and you said you're going to put 600 fishing people in, I thought you you were crazy. Then you called me and said you need some extra seats. And... Then you tell me you need more. I'm going, what's going on here? Then I saw what you put. He said, I've been at this theater for, for, for 15 years. He said, the only one who's ever sold the ballroom out in the history of me being at this theater or, or, or ballroom, it was Alice Cooper on a was, New Year's I, Eve show. I was going to say Bruce Springsteen. I was trying to Alice jump Cooper. on Jovi. I was trying to think and, and, some and Jersey And he said guys. they had Jethro Toll come in. Yeah. And he only sold 600 tickets. Really? So, I mean, of course, this is the old beat-up Jethro Tull. It's not when he was packing football stadiums. This was, you know, a comeback well, Jethro Tull. Well, this Tull. is, what, 2001? 2001. I saw Jethro Tull in 1992. Yeah. At, <laughs> or maybe 91, 91, at um, the James L. Knight Center. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, well we beat him. That, 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 yeah, that's our slogan. Great. They said, hey, we tied Alice Cooper and beat Jethro Tull with the seminar series. Nice. <laughs> That's but awesome. that goes back to the Jersey craziness up there. They're they're devoted big time. Yeah, no, that 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 is true. I mean, it's the, the most densely populated state. It's crazy, I think, yeah. in, in, in the country, and it's true. I mean, we go up there all the time to go visit the in-laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they do love their fishing. They do love their outdoors, yep. and we we hear it all the time. Um, <clears throat> no, that's great. What's the, <laughs> it's the Hard Rock now? Is the the Trump Hotel? Right? Uh, I think yeah, it is. Um, Did the Hard Rock take that over now? Uh, yes, it is. You, you're right? correct. Yes. I think it's like their second year. No, no, no. It's not the Hard Rock. The, the Trump, uh, it was taken over by, oh, what the, it's the chain. They also have one in Biloxi, Mississippi, which we've been to before at the same place. The Harris. No? Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll come to my mind here. All right. <clears throat> yeah. The, um, so the seminar series, you, you're still keeping that going on. Yeah. Is that primarily just like a coast thing? Because I think that's really cool what you do with that mm-hmm. is the, including like the local captains mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, wasn't Ben a part of that too? Ben Sharp? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He he, he did, I know, Port St. Lucie. Okay. And um, I've tried to get him to be part of our Isla Mirada one, but always conflicts with the tournament that he runs. Right. But with the dust them off, yeah. Yes, with yeah. the dust them off. And yeah. speaking of Ben Sharp. Ben's a good dude. We got our ratings in after our airings finished on NBC Sports. Out of the episodes that we've done, the episode I did with Ben was a, was NBC's top-rated episode in our saltwater block. Really? I, I called Ben up when I got the ratings. And said, guess what, Ben? Oh, man, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah he he's a hard worker, man. He's a really, really great, good guy. Great, um, knowledgeable, yeah. offshore fishing person. Yep. Very. And a uh, Navy veteran. Yep, absolutely. Navy veteran, too. Yeah, yep. yeah, very cool. And just a fun guy to have on the boat. So when you're recording this last season, is this last season that you just got done recording, is that now the this, discovery season? Yes. When we started shooting in April, and the one we this episode we finished last week was episode 13, this is starts up in January for the Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. And then we air them through June. 
and they, they, you know, they run their regular 13, then they repeat the 13. Yeah. And then come April, we'll get back to work for 2000, you know, whatever, 2021. That's great. I mean, for someone who's, you know, born and raised South Florida, born and raised in Miami, um, to build what you've built by fishing, um, that's, I mean, to, to say a dream come true, I think is, is obvious, you know, but, you know, you know, this has got to be ultimately like extremely fulfilling for you to have lived a life on the water, you know, in, in, you know, you're a family man, you know, um, and you know, you've, you've been able to provide for that family, you know, through doing all this. I mean, it's got to make you feel good. It does. And, you know, I'd love to sit here and just, you know, I will tell you how great I am because I did this, but it's funny in a lot of things in life, it's how things take weird turns and all that. And I'll give an mm-hmm. example. And my dad, uh, who got me into fishing, he was a big fishing guy. He was a dentist, Bay Harbor Islands. And that's in Miami Beach. So a lot of times he'd take me to the seawall, Biscayne Bay, a little plastic outfit, catching these little tiny snapper grunts. And it was in my blood. And he loved the fish. He had a 23-foot Scotty craft, loved to go to the Marquesi Islands off of Key West or west of Key West to bottom fish. That was his thing. He'd love it. He'd, he wanted muttons groupers, and, that, mm-hmm. and we grew up doing that. So um, when it was time, I, I guess I was like 16, and I started, you know, he was getting out of fishing. He bought a, a like a bass bay boat kind of a deal, a tri-hole. It was a Thunderbird. And I started, you know, I grew up fishing with him in Biscayne Bay. So I'd take my buddies out at my driver's license. We catch trout, snook, tarpon, but the love was offshore. So I, he always told me a cardinal rule, never, ever, ever go offshore. Of course, we never listened to him on those calm days. Mm-hmm. Buddy and I, we'd run out. We bottom fish. And one day we, we crushed the groupers and snappers. And we come back in. I'm cleaning the fish in the driveway. He pulls up. And he goes, where did you get those groupers and snappers? And one of his favorite spots, he would take me with the boat was under the Bay Harbor Bridge. We had a certain piling we'd anchor, and we'd fish, catch some small snappers. And I told him that. And he said, you went offshore? I said, no, they really bit. So I got away with it. I heard him tell my uncle. Your nose, your nose grew a little bit? It, it, it had that. to grow a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so he went out with my uncle and got this big drum and all that and said it was really good. So we, I, the next time we had gone out, we went dolphin fishing. And we crushed a dolphin. And sure enough, darn it, he comes home early from, from work that day. We're cleaning fish. And, and I, I, I tried to tell him the bridge deal on the bay. That was it for me. So he figured his son's going to Mahi ran Yeah. No, he couldn't, didn't buy that one. So I got grounded. And he figured my, my son's going to die out here. If he's going to do this offshore, we got to get him a decent boat. So he was good friends with Bob Hughes. And I became friends with Bob Hughes, the legend. Hughes yep. bone fishery. Bob lived a few miles away from me. So he says, I'm going to talk to Bob Hughes and get an aquasport because he was an aquasport dealer. And at the time, I'm reading Florida Sportsman Magazine, Saltwater Sportsman. I see these ads for Mako. And I said, Dad, let's get a Mako. Let's look at Mako's. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. How did you get kind of involved? This is and this you, is how you, my career started, between, with being a crazy twist. And he says, no, Bob Hughes is a dealer. He doesn't deal with Mako's. Plus, Bob gives me good deals. And I argue with my dad. And he was going to get an aquasport. His dad, I look at these Makos and something about the Mako ads and the Mako boat and that lifestyle that they portrayed, they're portraying a hardcore fishing type boats. And I insisted. So I finally wore them out to take a look at a Mako at Fisherman's Paradise. And he liked it. It was a 23. So he spoke to Bob Hughes. Bob said, I got, I know Warren owns Fisherman's. We'll work a deal. We'll go to the Mako route. So we got the Mako. 
so we had the 23 footer for two years. Then he, he did the 25. Then I started fishing the Mako owner tournaments, the original ones back then. And he had the greatest thing going because not only did he do the tournaments, but did an outdoor riders tournament each year. And back then, those tournaments were not like they are today. Today, they call them funaments. Mm -hmm. Back then, they were fun, but you had a nucleus of anglers that fished at hardcore, including us. I fished it six years, won the Angler of the Year title for the six years. We used to trailer Canaveral, Palm Beach, Destin. We did them all, the Keys. My senior year of college, Bill Monroe asked me, who was the, the marketing director, could you take your boat over to Walker's K? We're having a Mako Outdoor Riders Tournament. They do it every year. They take 10 of the top fishing riders. We'll pay your expenses, help us fish some of these guys. And that was like a dream come true. So mm -hmm. on that trip, I fished Frank Sargent with Outdoor Life at the time, met Barry Gibson, Rip Cunningham with Saltwater Sportsman. Frank Sargent knew at the time I did a lot of sail fishing at Palm Beach. He says, why don't you write an article for Outdoor Life on sail fishing? He says, Frank, I don't even know if I could spell my name, let alone write. He said, put something together. If it's good, we'll run it, polish it up. If not, we'll let you know. So the first story ever sold went to Outdoor Life magazine, which was one of the top paying magazines. I got a check for $300. I thought I was going to retire. <laughs> so Barry Gibson asked me from Saltwater to do a kingfish story, which I did. Long story short, about a year later, Barry Gibson calls me up. We have a position open up in Saltwater Sportsman. Would you be interested? They flew me to Boston, which was the headquarters. And, in, and that was 1983. Uh, I came aboard Saltwater as a staff editor and the rest got to where I am now. Now, had my dad really been insistent on not getting Mako and bought an aqua sport, I wouldn't be sitting with you guys today. So you talk Probably about not. the weird twist yep. and turns mm -hmm. in life. Yep. That, that is, that's odd. And that speaks to the kind of boat and the boat company that <clears throat> Mako is too. Um, you know, I, I've always loved and my ability to help my dad to get one. Otherwise I wouldn't yeah, be doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, that's a company that's always been on the forefront of, of offshore sport fishing, um, to, at its core. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, no doubt. But like I said, it's life has these twists and turns and breaks and, and, you know, it, a lot of who you meet and who you know, and, and, you know, used to hear your elders tell you, you know, always work hard, always you be honest and this and then that and to the point where it's like redundant. Mm -hmm. And as you get older and then you see like the successes or whatever you've had, you, they, they were right because people trust you because you tell them you're going to do something, you're going to do it. And they know the work you're capable of. And they know, well, if George says he's going to do this, he's not going to shaft us and, and right. do something different. They trust you. And that's, you know, if I could pass something on to the younger generation, uh, be honest, person of your word, you work hard, harder than the next guy, and, you know, you, you, you put out a good product. So valuable. It, it is. And it is basic. Yeah. It's so basic. I think a lot of people don't really realize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, and that is true. I mean, it's so valuable. I mean, I don't think anybody looks at you and thinks the latter mm -hmm. of what you just said. And because every, everyone knows that you, when you get, you tie the George Pavroma name to something, it embodies everything that you just discussed, you know, and there's, there's, it's so valuable. Yep. Right. There's, there's no but, doubt, but not only just like from a business standpoint, but intrinsically like within yourself, like mm -hmm. the life that you're living, you know what I mean? If you want to live a good, honest life, it just feels good. You know what I mean? It's just very valuable to, to just be that person, you know? And I, and like you said, to the next generation coming up, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are, are trying to change that mm -hmm. or trying to divert that mindset or, mm -hmm. or that way of life. And I really think that 
an influence like that or a comment like that goes a long way because, you know, kids growing up now need to see that and understand that. I know there's a lot of distractions out there. Like this morning, you know, our kids woke up before us mm-hmm. and we woke up, <laughs> came out on the couch. My daughter has my wife's phone and my son has my, my phone. Mm-hmm. And they're both playing the games on the phone. I'm like, wait a minute, time out. What's going on here? You know what I mean? How did this happen? And why do you think that this is okay? Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, instilling the values in them, you know, and that's just one example. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that there's a huge value to that um, in, in the world and, and just the way things are moving. You know, I'm probably getting long winded about that, but. No, you're uh, right. You know, and, and there's one more thing that I think that the, 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 the youth or kids come up today, what they need to realize based on what I said, I said, there's no quick super success story. You know, it's something you right. work at. They get frustrated. Well, I'm working here making eight bucks an hour. Uh, but they, they lose sight of, well, you're working towards a future goal. You, the, the place you're working now, part-time or whatever, full-time for eight bucks an hour, you might meet people that give you a better contact or move you somewhere else. You got to stick with it. It, it. You know, success is not overnight unless you got a super wealthy father who kicks the bucket and then you get the inheritance the good old yeah, fashioned right. way. I mean, yeah. it's, you build on it and it yeah. sometimes it takes 10, 15 years. It's a, it's a long process, but if you stick it out and you push it, you know, and you work hard and you, you, you'll, you'll get stick there, to your guns. but it's not an instant cure. No. And, and, and I think a lot of, in our society, it's a habit so thing. fast. Yeah. It's, it's it, like a habit yeah. thing or, you know, where you just got to, you got to stick to these mm. discipline, these core principles sure. in your life. Yeah. And, yeah. and make that your habit. People ask me, I get a lot of emails and kids talking to me, you know, I, I want to do what you do. What, what, what advice could you give me? I want to get involved in the marine industry and, and this. And I'll ask them how old they are and what they're doing. And the first thing I tell them, I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I said, if you're at the point now where you're looking to go to college, I said, you go to college, you get a degree, you, you figure out what you want to be in college, whether it's a business person or whatever. And you do that. And then once you get that degree, then if you want to go play around in the marine industry, whatever, you do it. Because I tell them, I said, you love it now because it looks great from the outside looking in. But unless you were so enamored by it, it's your blood, the amount of work in our industry will burn them out and they'll mm-hmm. leave. Then they said, oh, I got to go fishing again today. But I said, you could always fall back on that degree or whatever it is that you have once you play here. And I said, it's always, in my opinion, better to have a good paying job whether it's a trade that you learn and you don't go to college or whether you go to college, you get a degree, have a good paying job and have the means to enjoy our sport to, in, in a good fashion where you have the means to buy good reels, means to buy a good outboard motor or boat and then fish it as a hobby. You'll never, ever, ever grow tired of it. And, and you would enjoy that immensely versus being thrown into that yeah. and having to work. And yeah. they, they look at me like, Really, I'm trying to get out of school to do what you're doing. I said, no, you need to go the other way around. That's an interesting perspective to hear from someone who's making a living in the in the industry. And I was and, lucky, and, but I can relate and, and again, because I'm, I'm in the I'm, industry I'm, too. And I'm lucky. You're lucky. Yeah. What are the odds of people doing what you do? You know, for every you know for yeah, every the dentist percent, Friel the percent, out there, right, there's, the there's going to be thousands that don't get there. That's very correct. I mean, extremely fortunate yeah. to be in the position that we're in right now. Because the percentile of success is very low mm-hmm. in, in doing what you and I do, um, you know, and you know, we just recently had a guest on that has a law degree, and you know, to be an influencer in in the industry, mm-hmm. um, 
for what he's trying to do and, and the causes that he's trying to achieve mm -hmm. uh, would be a lot less difficult to do if he weren't educated and would have a better understanding mm -hmm. of the law. So that's also where that degree can help you within this industry. Mm -hmm. um, but also we have uh, Amanda and Emily, the, the Gale Force twins, mm -hmm. um, that, that, you know, they're on our team here at the studio. But, you know, they went to the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. They have both have degrees in microbiology. They're twins, you know what I mean? But they don't want to do that. They want to try this, you know, charter fishing you know, captain. They're both certified captains. Yep. Um, but they're in a better spot to try that because they have that degree sure. behind them. And they got a backup. It's a lot more of a secure Absolutely. venture for them if they, if they didn't have they, that. They're young. They've got the time to gamble out there. Right. If it works, wonderful. Yeah. And if not, they got a backup. Yeah, and I, and I think they will work. There, there's no doubt about it because they're, they're real hard workers and they embody the principles that we mm -hmm. discussed before. Um, but for some reason, you know what I mean, God forbid that it doesn't. Right they're going to have a, a foundation to fall back sure. on. Very important to be secure yep. uh, in, in your decisions in life. I mean, yeah, for sure. You know, I often think, um, you know, what a weird industry <laughs> that we're in. You think? Yeah. I mean, it, it's such a, God, you know, if you want to put it, There's your nothing like on, it. There's nothing like it. I mean. And I think that's why we stay The risk, it. the reward. I mean, it, it's, it's phenomenal, but it's in like the crazy, strange people that you meet along the way. I mean, bizarre yeah and I, I don't think there's any other industry yes other industry you probably had some oddballs but but we take the cake there's some characters in this that no doubt about it if you were to write a fiction story and put them in they would say that's what it is it's fiction they wouldn't even believe it's true right no no doubt about it at all i mean i came from all right so i mean not talking about myself but just just to give context um i started painting fish at a very young age mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I had some early success, but I decided to go to art school, came out and got a job. I worked actually at that same job for 17 years. Right. It was in the music business and I was a creative director by the time it was all said and done. I ran the department of mm -hmm. like 20 people, but I got a real good hard knocks education on the corporate world. <laughs> right. And I always knew that we'd run our own thing one day and, you know, Thank God I have a wife that's fully supportive and the family that's completely supportive of everything that we did. We, you know, long story short, we quit the day job. We started the business. I never stopped painting fish. I always painted fish. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to do it full time. Mm -hmm. But having that perspective of what life was like in the corporate world compared to what it is like fending for yourself mm -hmm. in the marine industry mm -hmm. is such a opposite, you know, Thing. Now, there's obviously you're running your own business, but I'm a businessman. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a business owner. Mm -hmm. um, and there's parallels there, but it's very small, you know, because the corporate world is very safe, very secure, but you can't, you know, make your own way kind of thing. You're, you're stuck in that, sure. in that business model, someone else's business model. But this industry is just, you know, some of the they're shysters. Hmm. People want to take, kind of take advantage of you all the time. We're sure. getting a nonstop. Now I'm at the point where it's just like I can spot them a mile away. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, we're not doing business together. You know, no, you keep your money. We're good. Yep. Um, but, you know, but it's also been the most rewarding industry because there's so much passion involved yep. in fishing. There's so much passion involved in, in building a life on the water or around the water or around the idea of saltwater living. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what this whole show is all about, you know, bringing that community and, and together. And a lot of really great people too. 
yeah, a lot of really great industry. people. Very. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to say that this is just an industry filled with pirates and wenches. But we have those. <laughs> <laughs> we have those for sure. But there are a lot of really great people. People like yourself, and we try to bring these people on the show um, to put a spotlight on those that there are really good people um, in this industry making their own way mm-hmm. um, and being influencers within the industry that are that are basically giving it an identity. Sure. Um, you are certainly one of those people, but you're on the forefront of that. Um, you know, before social media um, evolved to what it is today, um, you were bringing that to the masses, you know, already, um, which is pretty significant um, in my mind. I mean, that's another reason why we're honored to have you on the show. Yeah, all in a day's I work, mean, and all, that's what I do. I just, you know, just love doing it. And, you know, whether you write an article for Saltwater Sportsman and, uh, you know, it gives you an opportunity to relive a trip that you're writing about. So you really do that trip two times mm-hmm. when you're writing it and in, in, in the shows and, you know, it's just what you do. And, and like I said, even though we finished early, um, I'm already itching to get out that boat and get going again. It's like, wow, yeah. I need, I need to be out there. Yeah. Yeah. You get addicted to it. <laughs> you I mean, do. I always, you know what? I always, um, parallel or compare like you know, fishing with art. Mm-hmm. I think fishing is an art, first of it all, is. Um, it, onto its own. But I always, I see, because I do both, I see a lot of parallels between the two. Um, and, and one of those is, you know, you know, that addiction you get to it because you think you work so hard and you burn yourself out that you're just like, man, I can't do another day in the water, right? Or, man, I can't. I just don't want to talk to, like, another customer. I don't want to do another painting. I don't want to put down another stroke on canvas. I am just so... If I don't do this again for like another five months, I'm good, right? Then like two days pass, and you're like, "All right, where, where's my next canvas?" Yeah, you know, uh-huh. Like, "All right, you know, all right, that, uh, maybe I just needed a break." Because yeah, I think sometimes you just need a vacation, yeah. right? And sometimes you just need to stop for a little bit and just like refresh. But you'll yourself. never get away from it. Never get away from it. No, no, it's, it's a lifelong yet. commitment. No you know, doubt, for sure. Just like being a Floridian is a lifelong commitment. No doubt. <laughs> so I'm going to have a little bit more. I'm about to say, yeah. let your guests get a little empty. Yeah, there. I'm sorry. <laughs> what kind of host is he? I'm horrible. I didn't even let John John drink today because I yeah. want to make sure like everything is like no, all, so, all Somebody recorded. has to be paying attention. Like I would have stopped, like, stopped recording. I would have stopped recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be like, we're going to sit here like we're going to be talking like this whole time drinking well, rum. We're well, like, well, oh yeah, we didn't record well, any of that. Well, I got a question for you. Yeah, it's sort of how I got here started. Well, how did Dennis Friel get to where you are today? What would you consider was your big turn in the corner break that you got to get you to be a a household name in the uh, marine industry as far as an artist? Well, first of all, I appreciate you asking that question um, because being, I'm just trying to get this sticker off, being that, you know, I run this show here and I'm always asking about the guests and it's like, you're the first person to ever ask about me. So thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate (laughs) that. Um, It has been a journey of relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. As you well know, um, if I had to re, I mean, I could go back so far and there are so many people that influenced this along the way and that, that have given us breaks and opportunities. Um, and without those people, we wouldn't be here today. No doubt. Because you can say that you were the most talented artist in the world and it probably wouldn't be worth a hill of beans if you didn't have the platform. Um, you know, there was, um, this is, a, I'm going to give you a long winded mm-hmm. answer to this. Um, there is an artist, um, Jean-Michel Basquiat. I'm not sure if you're familiar or not, but he was um, under the tutelage of Andy Warhol. And when I say tutelage, it wasn't anything strict. This is, you're talking about the 1980s pop New York art scene that was really just loosey-goosey, 
doing drugs, partying, like the whole thing like that. But, you know, if you want to say tutelage, you could say tutelage for, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, and there was a writer that wrote about him. Now, if you know Basquiat's work, you'll see it's very wild and crazy. And some, would, some people would say almost like children art-like. Mm-hmm. But if you really understand art and you look at it deeper than that, it's totally not. It's, it's very good work. And for the time that it came out, um, it was groundbreaking. The art world recognized it. But there was a writer that wrote about him, and he said that, you know, something to the effect of, you know, we know Van Gogh because of Van Gogh's ear, <laughs> right, for the most part. And a lot of people, that's what they know. They know the story of Van Gogh cut off his ear. And he never, he only sold one painting during his lifetime. He never had that platform really while he was alive. Now he was within the circle of the famous artists of the time, but he was never well known until after his death. And that's for the whole cliche of artists don't get famous until Mm -hmm. they're dead. Right. That's, that's, that's the Van Gogh story really is, you know, why people say that because plenty of people knew Picasso while he was alive and he was very famous while he was alive. And he would, he would, he'd think he died in like 1973 some people are shocked to find that out that he was, that was actually that close to our time. Mm. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, sometimes, you know, this writer said about, about, um, Jean-Michel Basquiat and he said, you got to be careful sometimes because what you might be looking at, you might be looking at Van Gogh's ear, right? Which means like, even though that is such a wild off crazy thing of what art might be, right? You don't know that might be the next next best thing, mm-hmm. and that's crazy thinking about art. But it's people that if it wasn't for that writer, that maybe they may not have put Jean Michel Basquiat into that forefront, right? And if it wasn't, they maybe Andy Warhol wouldn't have been like, oh, that's Van Gogh's ear, mm-hmm. bring him to me. And then they, you know, so it's those people that along sure. the way that mm-hmm. made that person, or at least gave them a platform. Mm-hmm. Now, I think everybody who makes it to a certain point in life, you know, you don't make that if you that make it to that point if you're not talented. All right. Um, but not everyone who's talented makes it. And there are reasons why. And a lot of, th- a lot of times those are because of relationships, right? But early on when I was about 17 years old, I walked into an art gallery called the Wildfish Collection right there in on a, at the Atlantic yeah. Bridge, right? Um, Mary Allison Reed Blair owned it. And someone said to me, hey, there's an, a gallery that you can go through and you show some people your paintings. I'm able to hang you. I was a senior in high school and they got such a kick out of that, that they basically like rubbed my hair and said, yeah, sure. <laughs> Throw it up on the wall. To me, it was the biggest deal ever. Sure. Right. To them, it was probably just like, Oh, we got it some wall space. Why not throw the kid up there? See if it sells. Well, the paintings did sell, but I'm also hanging right next to like Don Ray, mm-hmm. you know, and Stanley Meltzoff. Right. And even some guy Harvey's and stuff like that. You're in the starting lineup and I'm 17 years old and I'm like, <laughs> I made it. Already, but that's it wasn't the truth, but you know what I mean? That's how I felt. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it was huge. And so Mary Allison Reed Blair, they, they put me in the, on, on that platform, and they made me kind of realize that not just for painting fish, but being an artist professionally can happen, you know? And if they would have told me no, no, we're good, kid. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Maybe I would have kind of like not been so inspired to continue this. You know, and so maybe there's like a parent out there that's like telling the kid, no, you don't want to draw artists, don't make a lot of money. You know what I mean? It's be an accountant, be something safe, right? That's not the good thing. So, um, you know, there have been a lot of people along the ways um, that have helped this out. Um, you know, my family, my wife, you know, obviously, um, you know, but 
I think you got to look at the people that support you over the years, like in the Bernard Paul houses, the families that bought your paintings. Sure. You know, every time, um, you know, the Paul hearts, you know, and I'm name dropping here because these are people that have supported this cause. The Frank Tropappies, the Tropappi family, um, that have really supported, you know, this cause, um, you know, George God's good friend of mine. He supported this cause early on. Um, you supported this cause early on. Um, you know, and I hate dropping names cause I know I'm going to forget people. Um, you know, but there's, there's people that, you know, you question as an artist, you always doubt yourself. Right. And you know, there's people along the way that, you know, you feel like that person just bought that from me and you know that they're well off mm -hmm. to help out and you get it and you know, sometimes, you know what I mean? So, you know, I guess I'm just kind of losing my way in this answer a little bit, but I just overall wanted to say that, you know, without the help of the people, you know, because art is a very subjective thing and it's not like a concrete, you know, like this is what I'm bringing. It's just fishing too, like in media and entertainment, you know, so without people there to support it, I mean, it would be nothing. And then based on what I got out of that story you told me, had it not been for that shop, putting your picture up. Yeah. You know, a little thing like that. A little thing. This way, you know, when you when people will write me and say, I want to try fishing, I want to do that. You know, you never come back with a negative type of response. You always give them the encouragement because, mm -hmm. you know, you were encouraged because they gave you the opportunity to hang your, your print. You said you were 17? I was 17. That's, that's huge. Yeah. And, and had they not done that, who knows? Where, like you said, you could have taken another direction. But just goes to show you the sensitivity of a young person coming up Never tell them they can't do anything. Yeah. You know, give them, you know, build them up and all that and talk to them and give them certain ideas for them to think about too, but always make them feel good because you might think that's just a, a minuscule little comment, but to them that could be the push. Yeah. That pushes them into something that really does well from their career. You don't realize how those little pushes, how big they could be in life. Yeah, it's, it's very true. Um, you know, especially if you are a person of influence, um, then you have to have that awareness too mm -hmm. of, of the impact that you might be having. Like you are obviously a, a person of influence and I know you're well aware of your words um, to when people come up to you and you know, what you say to them, how they respond to them. And you under, you have an understanding of that could be affecting their day, their month, their life. You know what I mean? Depending on the, the, the magnitude of their question, you know what I mean? There's a certain responsibility, I think, to respond appropriately to that. And, and what you just told me, I'll give you how I learned that. Because growing up, I was a shy kid. Mm -hmm. And um, my grandfather would take me to Hialeah Speedway every Saturday night to watch the stock cars race. I was addicted to that, too. And the only reason I didn't go into that was my grandfather wanted to get me going. And my dad, being a dentist, said, there's no way in the world... He told me, he said, you get yourself, you, if I hear you even drove one of those things in warm-ups, he goes, I'm going to break your legs before I have to sit and watch him broken in a car crash. Mm -hmm. That they were that anti-racing. So, which was good. That probably pushed me more into fishing in it. But Bobby Brack was, was the kingpin. Best late model modified racer come out of South Florida. He dominated that track. Now, you got to remember, I'm 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And after the races, my grandfather would take me into pits. And... 
you know, let the traffic clear up. But then it, a little kid, you're looking at those stock cars, you put your hand on the tires, they're all hot and sticky from running. This was mesmerizing stuff to me. Then we'd see Bobby Brack's race car and he was standing there. And to me, this guy was larger than life. I said, oh my God. And you'd look and my grandfather would walk up to say a couple words to him. And he would always take the time to come over and talk to us. And I'd, you know, your little kid, hey, good race, Bobby. You did you, a good taking the lead. And he would talk to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking this is the biggest thing, you know, going on. You go to another driver, they wouldn't give you the time of day. And so. I can't you know, stand that. No. And then yeah. every Saturday night I would go in the pits and I would talk to him. And he would have a conversation with 8, 9, 10, 11, up to, up to 17, all these years I went to the track. And I remember how that made me feel. So when I get an email from a viewer, um, you know, I try to answer every single email I get because I remember how I felt when Bobby Brack took the time to talk to a little kid. And even though it's another pain in the neck email you got to go through, but whatever you answer that person or advice or fishing tips you give them, he might have that same feeling. Mm-hmm. And so that's what made me stick to what I'm doing because of a guy like him when you were such a young age. Yeah. Crazy as it sounds. It it matters. (laughs) It does. It matters. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, I, I've had experiences like that, you know, as well. I mean, we've talked about this show in the time that I took the cruise with the Miami Dolphins and how cool Mark Clayton was to me. Mm -hmm. I was 12 years old and like he could have very easily looked at, all right, cruise with the Miami Dolphins. I just got to do this. I'm contractually obligated or whatever the case may be why he's there. Um, But he really, hung out with all the college kids, like was so cool with the parents. Yep. I mean, and, and so a lot of the other players were too, but especially Mark Clayton, he was the coolest man. See, do you remember that? Yeah. I remember that from my whole life. Yep. Um, I'd love to have one on the podcast one day. <laughs> hey Mark, remember that time? It's probably more for me than for him. But, but yeah, um, no, but, but that, that stuff does definitely matter. Sure. Um, you know, anytime, anytime you meet anyone from influence, it, it, it affects people's lives, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't know. Oh, it does. And then later on, I mean, again, these people are your customers too. So it, it's like yep. no different. I always like to say than if you owned a hardware store, mm-hmm. you want to sit and, and greet those customers at the front door, make them feel warmly welcome. And what, what kind of do to help you? There are other you know people in our industry that don't take that kind of time. So it's almost like if you had that same hardware store and you're out front with a baseball bat to scare your customers away. It, mm-hmm. It's, you know, these are your customers. You know, they're the ones who are buying your sponsor's product. They're the ones who are watching you. They're the ones who spending the $55 to come to the seminar series on a Saturday. So you, you need to take care of your customers and give them the time. It, it's only common business sense with so many people don't have, you know? Yeah, it's so right. I mean, I get, I get messages all the time from, from younger artists, mm-hmm. you know, asking for words of inspiration seemingly. Um, and you have to reciprocate that you, you have to respond to them appropriately. And to be honest with you, it's my pleasure to sure. You know what I mean? Cause you, if you take the perspective of it's really kind of my privilege and honor that a kid's emailing me and wants my advice or my opinion or, 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 you know, to share my experiences. And he'll go around and show everybody, look at this email that I got from Dennis Friel. He'll tell 20 people. Look at Dennis Friel. He got back to me. This is what he said. He'll never forget that. Yeah, and it's meaningful. Sure it is. You know, and you know what else is meaningful? You coming here today and sharing your time oh, with us. I'm joined. I'm a vacation. What if a good yeah, way to right. start my vacation? <laughs> <laughs> so what's left on your vacation? What are you going to do? You're probably going to fish. 
<laughs> no, I got to be, oh, you, you, what I call a vacation. You still have the work to do. I'm working on my saltwater sportsman column um, that I got to get in probably by Thursday. And then, um, you know, working on the seminar series, mm-hmm. just fine tuning our course loads and all that. So a lot of work, but it's at home type of work and in your desk. And then, you know, of course, sneak out some days here and there to, to fish, but the, the, the grind of mm-hmm. um, the pressure getting the TV show is like I said, we pushed that goal to get them all done by October, and we did, and and it, it was a grind. And yeah. we, we were living more in that boat than, than I was at home, and my wife would joke with me like, you know, you're, you're just a visitor at this house, you know, now these days. <laughs> I said, but I got a goal. I said, we started to end in October so I could get, you know, November, December off. And I said, and I said well, I got to stick to that, that those guns. We get it done, that's great. We got it done. Yeah, well, enjoy these next two months. Oh, they're going to go quick. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, no, everything goes by faster these days, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I mean, especially. I mean, in the studio, I, I'm constantly like, "What?" I know. Some people are like, "I can't wait till it's Friday." I can't wait till it's Friday. When Thursday <laughs> rolls around to me, I'm like, "Damn, it's Thursday. I haven't gotten this done yet, or I haven't you know?" It's like, "No, not yet. I can't have it be Thursday yet." And I guess when you're when you're running your own gig, you sure. kind of look at things a little bit differently, but. Um, yeah, no, I mean, for sure. It, it definitely, things are, things are moving, um, faster. And, uh, you know, uh, we mentioned, uh, Bernard Paulus earlier, he said something influential to me about that, um, today I had made a comment or not today or, or last week I made a comment to him about, oh yeah, can't wait till whatever's over, whatever's over. And he's like, well, don't wish time away. That's true too. <clears throat> yeah. Because at the end, that's all you have. And that's when you, if you remember too, growing up, you used yeah. to hear your uncles and grandfathers say that you would think, yeah. oh, I'll get out of here. But then you don't realize that that's correct too. you start getting up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm starting to look at things that way, <laughs> you know, in, in, in these days. So, um, what's next for the seminar? When does that start up? Uh, first show is a, a Saturday, January the 4th, I believe it is. We kick it off in Fort Myers. Okay. And then from there we go to Hampton, Virginia. And from Hampton, Virginia, we go to uh, Myrtle Beach. Then we go to Isla Morada. And then we go to whatever the other cities. I got to look at the calendar. I don't, you know, no, but, sorry. Uh, sorry. We'll, but we, we'll we go so, oh, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Oh, yeah, let's, you back. can't forget about Atlantic City. I can't wait to go back to Atlantic City. Yep. And, you ever uh, roll the dice up there when you're up there? No. Can people ask, when you go to casinos, don't you like to gamble? I said, I, said, I do. I said, I gamble on doing a TV show every year and a seminar series yep. every year. You know? yep. I tell you, <laughs> I got I, all the gambling I need. I am not a gambler. Right? <laughs> Me either. I am Uh-oh. not a gambler. Like I learned my lesson early on that, right? When I was young, <laughs> I went to Vegas and I did great. Yep. Right. I did great in roulette and I came home with like a couple of grand and <clears> I was, I was in my mid twenties. Right. And then the next time I went to Vegas, I was married. <laughs> right. And, but, but it was on a work trip and she was home and I didn't do so great. Uh-huh. Like, like, well, and that no, was probably the best thing that ever happened. You didn't to me. do so great. Like, like how, how not so great? Well, you I ended up any losing, numbers out? Yeah. I ended up losing maybe just less than a couple grand, but you know, it wasn't good. No. And, and you know, at that point I'm sharing a bank account with someone else and it, it affected so more bad. than me. Right. Right. That's terrible. And, and um, I had a lot of apologizing to do. And it was one of those where you keep going back to the ATM and you think you can win it back. Mm-mm. And I tell you, one of the worst things that would have could have happened to me is me winning it back on that trip. And I'm glad it didn't because, to be honest with you, 
I never after that trip laid another dollar down on a casino table again. Well, look at the casinos. They didn't get that big and, and, and sure. elegant by losing and giving away money all the time. Too. Yep, and that's what she said to me. Oddly enough, that's funny you say that because she goes, do you think that big building, you know, is, is wanting to give you money? You know, they're there to take your money. Why are you doing that? You, I'd you, rather you, take that $20, you, you know, that you would throw on a table or 100 whatever you're thinking and, and buy something with it. You could walk away with it in your hand. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on the show today. No, if I want to thank you, it's an honor for me to be with a premier saltwater artist and having you call me to come in here. It's, it's, it's been my pleasure. I'm going to cry if that you just said that. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> so, George Barbaro, you're my hero. Thank you very much I for coming on. appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and we're ending the show like this now. Uh, your ego is not your amigo. And uh, just do your best. Let God do the rest. Always remember to eat, drink, and be local. And no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we're always connected by water. No doubt. George Pavaromo. Papa Spillard. Yeah. Papa Spillard. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>